great to see you this morning. And I hope you've been enjoying God's, the richness of God's presence this morning. Yeah? You've been enjoying the, the, the sense of worship and praise and, and maybe joy. Maybe you sense God breaking through as we're worshiping together. Um, well, I've got a word to really encourage you. Rob, how many of you were here last week? Quite a few. Okay, Rob shared a rich word with us, didn't he? Really profound and deep about uh, the bride of Christ and about us as a church being the bride. He made us on purpose to be his. Uh, and so I've got a, a, a word that's, well, you'll see in a minute. I mean, it's, Rob's was profound, but this is just going to amaze you. Are you ready? So this is my topic for today. So Rob was talking about God made you on purpose. I'm talking today on God made you weird. Some of you are loving it already, I can see. You're like, this is for me. I've been waiting for years for a message that just confirms my identity. Yeah, all right, Albert. All right, Albert. It's okay. <laughs> I've touched a nerve already, I can see. I want to preach today and, and share just the thought. Obviously, I'm going to look at difference and how we're different, how we're unique. But I want to go a little bit beyond that as well today. Under this topic of God's made you weird. And, and I don't know, some of you will have gadgets in your pocket that, that open. My phone opens on my fingerprint. iPhone, Apple have just released a new phone that you look at and it recognizes you and opens. And Android phones have had that for years apparently. But no doubt Apple will make more money out of it than anybody else has and say that it's upgraded it. But you, know, you, can, you can look at your phone and it now goes, oh, hello, and I'll open for you. Isn't that, isn't that very exciting? Now, technology is catching up with our uniqueness. The fact, I quite like the fact that I can put my fingerprint on a gadget and, and it recognizes that it's me, uniquely me, not anybody else. No one else can access it unless they chop off my thumb, and then they probably could. But I quite like the fact, and, and, the, the, and is this going to, going to carry on as technology catches up with identifying our uniqueness and using it uh, in positive ways that are actually quite helpful for day-to-day -day life? This is nothing new, of course. The Bible says that God knows the hairs on how many hairs we've got in our head. He knows our individual identity. He knows our uniqueness. We, we can look, if you're into astronomy, you can look up at the night sky and actually know what you're looking at. I'm not particularly, but I look up and I go, wow, that's amazing. I, I, I have an awe reaction to, to creation. I don't have an, an, an intellectual cognition of what's going on. Uh, necessarily, but uh, I certainly look up and go, wow, that's amazing, God. You are awesome. Uh, and those astronomers who've studied look at the number of galaxies that they can see or the, uh, and, and the multiple stars within them, and just, just you can, they can begin to try and estimate how many galaxies there are, and it's vast. And the Bible tells us that God said, let there be. And stars and, and galaxies were created at such vast distances. And, and we just see the light that shines towards us. Amazing, isn't it? Absolutely incredible. And God knows each one by name. Now, you may think that this is a bit of a bold title or just a quirky one. Uh, what, what evidence do I have to suggest that God's made us weird? Well, I'm 45. I've got a wife and two kids, and even in my home, I have enough going on to recognize that God's made me weird, because uh, uh, I'm different to other people. 
You see, even at home, I have evidence to suggest that people are so different. You see, Judith has this incredible ability. I don't know if she's not here, and I have checked this with her that I can say this, but Judith has an amazing ability. And guys, you might recognize this, that she can, right, she can do this. We're in the kitchen. She can open the fridge, and she can notice that the thing she wants is there. It's just amazing. So she can go into the dining room, and if there's something in the middle of the dining room table, she'll notice it. It's just, it's a phenomenal gift. I don't know if anybody else shares this gift. But I, on the other hand, walk in, look in the fridge and go, nope, it's not there. Go to the dining room, no, it's not there. Where is it? It must be around here somewhere. I just don't share that same gift. It, it, and so every day I'm confronted by this sense that there's something different. Judith tells a story which she finds funny. I don't think it's funny at all, but... Uh, of years gone by, we used to live in a, a house with a, an open plan sort of lounge dining room with a, a rail between the, the lounge and the dining room. And she sometimes would do the ironing and would hang up shirts. And I would spend the evening walking through between the two rooms. And then you know the inevitable conversation that's going to happen at some point later. Is there, I, I, have I got a shirt for tomorrow? Yeah. You've been walking through them for the last three hours. Have you not noticed them? No. So, so I realized that God's made Judith really weird. She's got this incredible ability to notice stuff. I, on the other hand, had an, an amazing ability to produce dad jokes that are really bad. And uh, nobody else finds funny. Um, just to, to kind of emphasize this sense of weirdness, difference, I think there's, there's something in our, and I'm using the word intentionally and on purpose, there's, there's a desire within us to identify who we are and how we relate to other people. I don't know if you've ever done any of those personality tests. Uh, some are professional and, and well-produced. There's a whole range on, <coughs> on Facebook and other social media platforms that are what, what color vegetable are you or what, you know, what, what are you, are you right-brained or left-brained or are you this or are you that? And, and it's meant to try and help you understand a little bit more about yourself and fit within kind of society and work out where everybody else fits to. And there's a whole group of people that hate doing personality tests. And there's a special personality type, which is just for them, that they don't realize. Um, but as you do the test, it, it actually puts you in that category of people that don't like doing personality tests. And they're kind of this, this, this desire to understand who we are and where we fit. I'm, I'm starting with a premise today that all of us are unusual. All of us are different. All of us, when, you, when looked at from a perspective of somebody else, are weird. And actually, we at sometimes, we, we may not think we are, but we look at other people and we go, well, they're a bit weird. So on either side of this, either we're looking at others saying they are, or people are looking at us and saying we are, we fit somewhere in that. And if you've ever asked the question, where do I fit in? I've got the answer for you today. Because I believe we all fit, even though we're all weird. Just to demonstrate what I'm saying today, to prove that it's scriptural, not just um, made up. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, which has often been the starting point for these messages. Uh, this comes in a series of creative days that God has, six days, and everything that we see is made. And he, he, he unpacks, the, the, the narrative unpacks day one, day two, day three, day four, and so on. And then we get to this day where mankind is made. And the verse says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image. Now, what I haven't shown you is, is that actually that's an unusual thing. Uh, I did speak on this. So I won't, won't labor this. But, but previously, God just says, let there be. 
let there be, let there be. And on this day, God stops and says, let us make mankind in our image. There's a bit more commentary around it. God pauses and he speaks. And he talks about mankind being made in God's image. And he gives a commission to mankind, which comes later on. Male and female sharing a commission to to fill the earth and subdue it, to rule over the animals. And there's, what we don't see is, is the days that come up to this point, God isn't interacting with creation in quite the same way. He's just saying, let it be, and it is. And here he stops and he pauses and he does something different. And we see in this that humanity is created different or weird to the rest of creation. We have a unique identity in God. We see that we're not only different from creation, but we see at the end of this that we're different from each other. There's an image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. Man and woman, both created on purpose. Both with calling, both with uh, uh, rulership built, you know, to, to a kind of commission, that's the word, a commission to, to rule over the animals and to subdue the earth and fill it. But different men and women created both in the image of God. just want you to pause and look at this because I think this shows us we, uh, something very profound. We know, that you, uh, we know that the world fell, that people fell away from God after this point. We know that perfection was marred and actually imperfection came into the world and sin and, and death and loss. But this shows me that uniqueness precedes the fall. Our uniqueness and our difference and our, our wonderful individuality precedes the fall away from God. That we were unique before we were broken. And, and some of us can think that our weirdness, our difference, our unusualness compared to others or theirs compared to us is something that's fundamentally flawed. And sometimes it is, but this shows us that the principle of uniqueness is built in before anything went wrong. It's possible to be weird and still okay. Secondly, God chooses weird or weird people. Luke chapter 6, it's on your screens in front of you. This is Jesus choosing the disciples. That's the, the little story that's there. And he's gone up a mountainside to pray. And he spends the night praying to God. And morning comes and he calls his disciples and he chooses 12 of them. He also designates them apostles. Simon, he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who's called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, Jesus prayed before choosing the twelve. This is a serious moment. He's choosing people who will carry out his mission on his behalf when he's gone. He's taking this seriously. This is not just some random collection of people because he couldn't find anybody else. He had lots of people following him. He could have aimed at representation and had people from different people groups. He's only got men here. He's, he's got no Gentiles. He's got no uh, um, scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. He's got guys who are different. They're not meant to represent the whole of Israel, but they're, they're a group of people that he's said he's chosen because his father's told him to. This is the group that's going to kick everything off in mission. This is the group that is going to be on the front foot and the front line of serving God 
and carrying out Jesus' purposes. But uh, there's something unusual about this group is that they're so different. Even though they're not from different kind of spectrums necessarily, and within Israel, there is a slight difference built in here. You see, on the screen, we've got a guy called Matthew or Levi, one of Jesus' disciples who was a tax collector. And down here, we've got Simon, who was called the Zealot. Uh, and the Zealots weren't far off terrorists. There were terrorists in this day in, in Israel, uh, some zealous Jews who were causing acts of terror to, to um, kind of over, try and overthrow Rome. And the, the Zealots were on that, on that end of the spectrum. They were revolutionaries. They were the ones who would, would stand against anybody who was in league with the Roman uh, rulers. And, and yet we've got Matthew, who's a Roman tax collector, collecting taxes on behalf of the Romans. And Jesus just goes, oh, I'll have you and you. You can work together. And you go, Jesus, what are you doing? He's choosing unusual people on, on different ends of the social scale. And he's putting them together. And different personalities built in. We know that James and John elsewhere are called the sons of thunder because of their personality traits, their, their volatility. He's choosing different people. But this, this isn't unusual for God. You see, God consistently chooses weird people. In Jesus' own genealogy, the own, his own kind of background, his who do you think you are in the gospel, we get... We get this in Matthew's gospel running through. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And so it goes on and on and on. Name after name after name of people who are in Jesus' line. And it's tracing it through the male line. All these people, all these guys that, that Jesus follows after, He's going to get to Matthew and he's writing this. The same Matthew I've just talked about, the tax collector. He's going to get to Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary, the mother of Jesus. So it ends with Mary and Jesus. That's the end of this. But to get there, he's tracing through some key people. Abraham and David and Solomon and some of the kings to get to Jesus. And you might think, Stuart, well, those, those are powerful and impressive people. Well, they are, but on this list is a whole bunch of rogues and murderers and adulterers and, and all sorts of people that you wouldn't put in a list if you were trying to prove how, just how perfect everything was. If you're trying to say God only wants the good and he only wants the perfect and he only wants those who've got everything sorted out, you wouldn't put them on the list. But I'm here to say today that God doesn't just want the good and the perfect and those who've got it all together. Jesus calls the people who are broken. He calls the people who've messed up. He calls the people who repeatedly mess up, who get it wrong again and again. And he says, come on, come and be part of my line. Come and be part of what I'm doing in the world. And that's what God is doing here. And I've left it at the end on purpose with this little phrase, whose mother was Tamar. Now, in this list of guys, we've got four women plus Mary at the end. We've got Tamar, who was widowed, let down by her family and then decided to act as a prostitute. She's in the list of those who went before Jesus. We've got Rahab, who was a foreigner. She wasn't Jewish, not part of God's people. She was a prostitute, not just acting as one. We've got Ruth, who was widowed, another foreigner. So poor at one point. She's in the fields collecting, she's gleaning or collecting the, the, the bits of crop that are left over because she's so poor, got nothing else. 
to eat. We've got Bathsheba who committed adultery with King David. Maybe she didn't have a choice, but that's what she did. And these women are in the list and the line leading up to Jesus. Why are they there? Well, maybe. I don't know. I like to think that maybe Matthew has a particular insight and perspective on the kind of rogues that Jesus chooses. I like to think that Matthew, coming from his background as a tax collector, has a particular insight and sympathy for those who were far from God, and yet God said, yes, come on to my side, come and follow me. And you know, I trust, that God is pointing his finger on you and on me and saying, come on, come on, follow me. He does this all the time. He chooses unusual people. Our past sin, as we see in this list, isn't a barrier to being used in the kingdom. Our nationality isn't a barrier. Our situation isn't a barrier to being used by God to be part of something bigger. God continues to choose unusual people. Let me move on. Um, God's gift of weirdness, or difference really, but let me just unpack this a little bit as well. All those people I've mentioned above were chosen not just to be with God, but they were chosen on purpose for God. We were created with a purpose to rule. We were called into God's people on mission. Jesus' disciples were called on mission. And we're all now called to be part of the kingdom on mission. I don't know if you support a a sports team of any kind, but if you do, or if you played sports, you'll be aware that different players function best in different roles. I kind of support a football team and uh, say kind of because it's Tottenham. You have to kind of support a football team when it's Tottenham. Um, I support Tottenham and so I cheer when they're winning and when they're not, I go, oh well, that's life. Um, But even I recognize that certain players play better in certain positions. That if I was to get hold of the team sheet and rearrange it and put the goalie as the striker and the striker in goal, they've got football skills. They can play around the pitch, but... But actually, there's certain roles that are better for certain people. That actually, that their skill set is, is shaped and molded according to their natural abilities, and they've honed those and they've practiced, but they're best when they're in the right place on the team, functioning in the right capacity. I don't know if you, some of you remember a match years ago when a guy called John Terry, who's a Chelsea player, uh, who's a defender, so he's, he's not meant to be up front generally, he's not meant to be in goal generally. But he actually ended up at one point in the match putting on the goalie gloves and playing in goal. Because one goalkeeper was sent off injured, then another one was taken off injured, and he ended up as a defender in goal. And the other defenders kind of protected him enough so that he didn't let a goal in for the rest of the match, which is amazing. But so you can occasionally take somebody else's place, but actually the players function better if they're in the right place. By their natural gifting, well, the same kind of thing applies in the body of Christ. Uh, Paul, in writing to the church in Rome, writes in Romans 12, the words that are up on the screen. And uh, he writes this, For the grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each one of us has one body with many members, and these members don't all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to the others. He's raising this principle here that firstly we shouldn't think of ourselves too highly. I would add too little either. We need to have an honest and godly thinking of ourselves. But 
We need to think, because he has that himself. He says, but think with faith. Think with faith. But we need each other. The image Paul's got is, is of the body, human body, with different parts. That's what the members bit means. Different parts of our body. And we, we need each other. We don't all do the same thing. And in Christ, we form one body, all belonging to the other. He goes on to unpack this a little bit more and says, we've got different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, uh, and we heard a prophecy earlier, then, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach to encourage. Then if it's encouraging, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, then do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Whatever gift you've been given by God, God's gift individually given, then do it to the best of your ability. Uh, and he, Paul unpacks this a little bit further in, in a book called Corinthians in the next book along. Uh, and we read about how, and you can see the words on the screen, I won't read them just for time, but we can see how each part of the body isn't only different and unique and gifted by God, but those gifts are fundamentally important to the other. In Corinthians, Paul starts talking about how actually every part at the bottom of this passage, it says every, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The images of an interconnected and interdependent body where God has given different gifts with the same purpose of building up the body. I think this gives us a couple of practical things that we can, we can draw from these passages and this principle that God gives difference or weirdness. Number one, we need an honest approach to who we are. An honest appreciation and a godly, faith-filled appreciation as to who we are and what, go what gifts we have. Don't overblow it. Don't undersell it. But be who God's called you to be. Secondly, that God-given gifts are necessary. That all of us have been given gifts by God and we need to use those for the sake of everybody else. We've actually got to play our part for it all to work together. This, this passage seems to imply that actually if, if people aren't playing their part, if we're not all being using the gifts God's given, that the body will be fundamentally broken. It just won't work. And, and the church won't work unless we're all playing our part. And if you're not sure what your gifting is, then you can ask. And, and actually this passage in Corinthians because it's talking about spiritual gifts says that we even if we've already got gifts we can ask for other ones it's not limited and you can ask for whatever you need you can ask for what the body needs to be built up we also see in this that your contribution is not only essential for others but it's not about you the contribution that each of us makes isn't about us but it's about others it's about building up the body You know, sometimes in church we can find ourselves wanting to fit in. Or in any group of people, we find ourselves wanting to fit in. We're sort of asking a question, do I belong? Can I fit? Will I find other people the same as me? And those are all valid questions. But this passage leads us to the only conclusion we can have, which is although you want people who are going in the same direction as you, and although you want people who have a sh shared vision, actually the idea isn't to look for people the same as you. Did you get that? 
The idea isn't just to look for people who are the same. But the idea is to look for a place where there's a bit missing and you're the bit. Where, where you can actually play your part. Where you can belong and bring the God-given difference that you've got to bear. It's not, if, if we were all the same and you find a group of people who are all prophets, uh, maybe the mouth in this body, and there's a lot of speaking going on, but, but nothing else. It's an unbalanced body. It's not a body. It's a group of people who all share the same gift. And if you are that gift, it might be exciting, but it's not the body. Does that make sense? It's just one aspect of it. So we actually need to be part of somewhere where we can play our part. Paul, I'll move on after this, but I need to just say something else. Paul's fundamental point here is not only that we're different, but actually that we should not compare with other people. We must not draw our own sense of well-being by looking at others and measuring up to them. It's a poor measure. To measure up to others is, is deeply uh, unhelpful to us. Finally, living weird. So if we've been made different, unique, I've said weird by God, if we've been given gifts that are unusual and different and unique by God, and I've said that's weird, I want to talk about living weird, and I'm going to justify why I've used the word weird as well, because it's not only about living differently. Uh, weirdness, when you actually look up the word, doesn't just mean unusual, but, but there's a sense about it being unnatural. It's actually got a negative connotation, but, but it's kind of otherworldly or from a different place. And, and that's, I think, the crucial thing. God hasn't just made us unique. That's a nice preach. He hasn't just made us different. That's a nice preach. But he's called us to live in a way that looks weird to everybody else. He's actually called us and marked us out as people who are from another place. And that's weird. And it's okay. And it's the reason we're here. And it's the only way we can live. And I just want to unpack this a little bit. Because my message isn't just about be yourself. Because there's so much more to life than being yourself. And if all you've got is to be yourself, you've, we're going to fall short. And I'll show you why in just a moment. This first passage, Paul, Peter is writing into a group of Christians who are struggling. They're, they're up against persecution. They're facing abuse. They're facing challenge. And Peter writes this, Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, I'm using the NIV, and the previous version of the NIV said aliens and strangers. If you're worried about my use of the word weird, how about the word alien? You're an alien. That's great, isn't it? Uh, foreigners and, and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is profound. Israel was marked out as a monotheistic people, one God. They were marked out as different. They had cultural aspects of what they did. As you read through the Old Testament, you, uh, and, I, and I hope you do read through your Bible, as you read through the Old Testament, you'll read laws and you think, Why? Why, why did they do that? Why circumcision? Why food laws? Why this? Why that? But some of it was to mark out Israel as God's people. To mark them out as different and unique and to say, this is what being my people, you're marked out. There's like a boundary around you. It says, this is how we live. And other people look in and go, they're weird. 
but they're living according to God's purpose. Living as part of God's people inevitably means living differently to those around us. Let me say a couple of things on this about living weirdly. I think there are two questions which are asked. One's a bit of an older question that gets asked and one's a slightly newer question. The older question is, how can I be happy? And I think a, an old, older mindset that's around in the world is, is, is just to answer the question, how can I be happy? And there's nothing wrong with being happy, but as a life goal, it, it limits you. Nothing wrong with being happy, but as, a, as an ambition in life, it's quite a small ambition. Because we're saying my contribution to the entire population will be limited by my own happiness. My contribution to other people's lives will be just around whether I feel good about it or not. My, my following of Christ will be, be, be only on the things where I'm happy. And if you've ever said, well, I just want to be happy. I just want my kids to be happy. I just want my, I just want my family to be happy. It's okay. I'm not going to take that away from you. But, but I'm going to call you and call me to live at a higher level than that. Because that's all right, but it's just shallow. And actually, there's times in life when I'm not happy, but I'm still serving God and I'm still doing the right thing. And I shouldn't deviate away from what I'm doing, even in my unhappiness. And there's times when you're unhappy because circumstances have just blown up around you. And you might have a deep joy that you can access. But at that moment, you wouldn't say you were happy. When the car's broken down and you've just kicked the dog or the dog's just kicked you or something's just happened. And, and life's falling apart. And you go, I'm not happy at the moment. But actually, I'm in the right place and I'm doing the right thing. And I'm serving Jesus still. That's okay. That's all right. The most meaningful life we can have isn't living to be happy. It's living to follow Christ. Secondly, the second question that we're asked today is this. How can I be true to myself? How can I be true to myself? How can I live an authentic life that's true to myself? And it sounds like a really valid question. But actually, I want to suggest that again, it's a tiny, tiny it's, a, it's okay as a starting point, happiness and living true to yourself, but, but actually there's a higher call. And I want to introduce that again today. You see, Peter is writing to those he's calling to be foreigners and exiles. Paul is writing in, in Romans, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. I want to suggest, to explain, to say that the life of greatest integrity and authenticity isn't found by answering the question, how can I be true to myself? It's actually found by answering the question, how can I become more like Jesus? That's the way to live a life of greater integrity and authenticity and wholeness and honesty. Because actually, Peter writes here quite honestly to say, if you're going to live a life following Jesus, you're going to have to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. There's stuff that I'm tempted to do which feels so natural. And I could say, this is part of me. Last night, I went for a walk to go and pray. And as I was out praying, I, I thought, you know what? There's no chocolate in the house. I'll go and get some chocolate. And I walked down. As I was praying on my way down. And I went into Asda. And I bought some chocolate. And I came home. And I ate a bit of it on the way home. That's okay. My desire was for chocolate. My spiritual desire was for God. 
both working hand in hand as I was walking. Now that's okay. But I could justify a life of satisfying every craving for chocolate whenever I wanted because it's a deep-seated desire. I would get to a point when, when that wouldn't be good for me. And I would have to abstain from that. But actually, there's, there's desires which I have which feel natural, but, but, and they're waging war against my soul. But actually, I'm, my call is to live like Christ. There's no better way to live than to be conformed to the image of Jesus. If I said that we could all live like Jesus did, wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be awesome? Uh, Some of us wouldn't like uh, some aspects of it. We would find some bits uncomfortable. But to think we could have the same kind of life as Jesus, that would be amazing. To live a life worthy of his name because we're, we're, we're not just looking inside and saying, how should I live? But we're looking up and we're saying, how should I live? What's my calling? You've called me to be conformed to the image of Christ. To put on my new self, not just rediscover my old one, but to put on my new self, sanctified and made whole and made holy. To become more like Jesus. There is no higher way to live. We all face the pull of our own heart, the pull of our own desires. We all face doubt or lack or fear or pride. I think all of us tend to measure others by us or us by others, and it's really unhelpful. But these verses I'm sharing today are calling us to live in an unusual way, an unusual way that feels countercultural, that is different, but he's following Jesus. I've got some heroes in faith, and some of them are in this room. People who persevere despite themselves. Despite a tendency to sin in a certain area, are renouncing that daily and saying, no, I'm living for Christ. I'm turning my back on that. I'm not pretending it's there. It is there, but I'm turning my back and I'm walking with Christ. I honor that level of faith. Day by day by day. Others who live in lack, they haven't got huge bank accounts, they haven't got vast supply, but yet living generously and and faithful, trusting God with finance and time. I honor that way of living in a weird way. It's weird because when you haven't got much, surely you should try and keep it all to yourself because then you'll get more. No, actually we trust God with what we have and we give generously even out of our little. I honor those who, despite opportunities who, to give up, persevere in the face of great opposition. And I've got heroes here who day by day, you're keeping going despite every tendency that would say give up, abandon, stop. And you're per- pressing in and you're persevering. And I want to say thank you. I haven't said this privately, but thank you for keeping going. Have heroes who inspire you to live differently. I need to wrap this up. It takes faith to follow Jesus. It takes faith to say yes. It takes faith to walk with him day by day. And I I, want to commend those who are doing that. I think we need to celebrate. As a church community, we need to celebrate every time someone takes a faith-filled step of obedience to say yes to Jesus. 
not just the first yes. We love it when people find Jesus and they say, yes, I want to follow him. That's great. But you know what? Every day there are steps of saying yes to Jesus. And we need to celebrate those more. To say when someone turns away from sin, to say, well done, yes. When someone has fallen uh, into a, a pattern of life that isn't godly, we need to, when they go, I'm desperate, help. We don't judge, but we lift up and we say, come. In fact, we're not stood up there. We're, we're walking alongside because we're just the same, aren't we? We're just as broken. All of us marred by sin. All, all of us regretting decisions that we make on a week-by-week, day-by-day basis. And we pick one another up and we walk together in faith. That's the kind of culture we want to be, where we're cheering one another on to faith and good deeds. As we celebrate people who are prepared to live in a way which looks weird, we're in good company. Jesus, Paul, Peter, all the heroes in here, the whole of the early church were treated as atheists because they only had one God. Isn't that bizarre? We think about atheists as those who've had none, but the early Christians were called atheists because they only had one. And they didn't have all the panoply of the Roman gods. The early Christians were weird because in a world where sexual opportunities were rampant, they chose to maintain standards of faithfulness in marriage and they chose to remain chaste outside of marriage. That looked weird. And yet as they honored Christ, as they took the hard road, as they loved Jesus and cared for each other, as they used their gifts, as each of them played their part, the Roman Empire was the thing which fell, not the faith of following Christ. Those who were called weird and different stood the test of time. I think it's good to be weird. Don't, don't intentionally set out just to be unusual. But, but as you follow Jesus, it's good. And, and finally, finally, this bit here. May they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. If we can live a life that's filled with Christ, if we can live a life that's filled with goodness, it will actually affect others in a really positive way. We don't need to call out their sin. We need to live a life that's filled with Jesus, that's filled with compassion, that recognizes like Matthew did that we came from a broken place, that we are no different, that all of us are the same, that we are sinners saved by Christ. We have now become saints in the kingdom of God, not because of anything we've earned, but because of his grace. And we live to discover him working in the uniqueness he's given us, working with the gifting he's placed within us, working with the, the desires and things that many of which come from God. As we live for him day by day, so others can see his goodness in us and glorify God. I wonder if you can pray with me. I want us to pray because there's a call to follow Jesus. And it's, it looks a bit unusual to other people. I'm aware of this particularly with young people. And we often pray for those going to secondary school and different places that they would have the courage to live as followers of Jesus. But it's not only the young that suffer from this. The desire for comparison or from wanting to fit in. And I just want to pray really simply that we would discover what it means to live as those conformed to the image of Jesus. That all the bits of our character and our temperament and our 
desire and all of that that we hold as what makes us us. We would be able to hold up to Jesus and say, Lord, I want to look more like you. And you know, the genius thing that happens as we do that is we all maintain our uniqueness, but we all look like Jesus. So Father, I pray for each one of us here that we would discover who you've made us to be as we become more like Jesus. Lord, may we discover again the call to be wonderfully weird to those who are looking in from the outside. Not because we're trying to be strange, but because we recognize that each of us has a different temperament, a different set of gifts from you. But most of all, we're wanting to be conformed to the image of Christ, that we might be more like you, Lord Jesus. And I pray as we do, that people would be captivated by your goodness in us, by your love that's flowing from us. Lord, I pray that our generous and gracious actions would lead others closer to you. And I pray that others would glorify God. Lord, where we see people struggling, where we see people wondering about who they are, wrestling with, do I fit? Do I belong? Have I got a place? Lord, I pray you'd help us encourage. I pray, Lord, that in this community of your people, not only might everybody find a part, but everybody might be able to be who you've called them to be, that we might be stronger together. In Jesus' name, amen.